That's a clip from the movie Risen. It's a story that imagines what might have happened if a Roman soldier by the name of Clavius uh, witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus and then, as Pilate's demand, becomes a detective trying to find Jesus' body because the body went missing, right? And uh, Clavius discovers that the body's missing because Jesus isn't dead, Now, you won't find a soldier named Clavius in the Bible, uh, but there was a disciple named Thomas uh, who didn't believe that Jesus had risen until he saw the wounds in his uh, wrists and and, and in his side. And that was the scene that they they chose to to kind of reveal there. It was just, uh, to me, uh, just, it really kind of captured my imagination, but you need the backstory. It had been actually one of the most shocking and horrific events. Just a week ago, Jesus had ridden into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey, a city that was full of Passover pilgrims, and they had gone nuts over him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And then Jesus had made a scene in the temple, and that was like the last straw for the religious leaders in Jerusalem. They had found a traitor among 12 of Jesus' closest followers. And then after a wonderful Passover celebration and a late night garden prayer meeting, Jesus had been betrayed by Judas and arrested. And what happened over the next 24 hours was so appalling and so horrible that the minds and the bodies of his followers were still numb with shock. After a sham of a trial, Jesus had been condemned to death at the hands of a Roman execution squad. The friend that they loved and followed and believed in had been beaten and scourged and crucified. A death so violent, a death so brutal that respectable people refused to even speak of it. Yet the disciples had been there. They'd seen him die. They'd seen the Roman soldiers like Clavius drive the nails through his hands and through his feet. They'd seen the soldier thrust the spear into Jesus' side and they knew that Jesus' body had been taken down from the cross and and laid in a tomb and, and they knew that Jesus was dead. And with Jesus' death, every dream every hope, every aspiration that they had ever had also died. Because friends, Jesus wasn't supposed to die. He couldn't die. He was the Messiah. He he was the king. He had come to save his people, not be killed by them. And suddenly everything that Jesus had ever said, everything that Jesus had ever done was meaningless. It was incomprehensible. It was hollow. Every miracle he had performed, every teaching he had presented, every promise he had made. I mean, what do you do with all of this? Because Jesus had died. Well, the few short days since those horrific events had been unbearably difficult. The shock had been mind-numbing. They'd hardly been able to, to sleep or eat or think, 
or even pray. The searing pain in their heart, the bewilderment in their minds, the the raw edge of grief throbbing in their spirits, a, a fear of what would become of them was overwhelming. That Sabbath seemed like it would never end. But finally, was the first day of the week, Sunday. But with Sunday came even more shocking and confusing news because it seemed like Jesus' body had disappeared. I mean, early Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene had gone to the tomb and She'd found that the stone had been rolled away, so she ran and found Peter and John and told them about that, and they ran to the tomb, and they found that the tomb was empty. And the linen that had been used to wrap Jesus' body was lying in a heap, and the cloth that had covered Jesus' head had been folded up and placed off to the side. They left the tomb. And then later, Mary said that she'd actually seen Jesus. She'd actually talked with him. I mean, that poor girl, she, she needed counseling. I mean, there's, there's obviously the, the, the grief, the, the, the tragedy has, has just kind of overcome her. She's just kind of losing it. And then that Sunday evening, it says that the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. They, they had seen what had happened to Jesus. They were afraid that they would be next. And then suddenly Jesus was just standing there among them. <laughs> you know, that's gotta be the most understated sentence in scripture. Here they are in this upper room with the doors locked, the curtains drawn, hiding there in fear, and then suddenly Jesus was among them. I mean, that must have been a moment. It doesn't say how he appeared in the room. It just says that suddenly he was there. Can you imagine what that moment was like? I mean, the past three days had been like a horror movie come to life. Their emotions and their nerves were raw with grief and fear. And then suddenly the room that they were hiding in, the the room that they were in that had the doors locked and the curtains drawn, Jesus is suddenly there. No wonder his first words were, peace be with you. (laughs) It's amazing half the disciples didn't die of cardiac arrest. (laughs) Now, I don't know, but... When, I, when I, I read that story, I don't know about you, but, but when I read that, that passage, I wish I had more details. I mean, I really wish I could just get more of that story. How exactly did Jesus uh, appear in the room? Did, did he just kind of, you know, uh, slip in and, and all of a sudden they realized that there was somebody else there? Or did Jesus just kind of go, boom, I'm here. I mean, I'd love to know how exactly that, that happened. And, and what, were, what were the disciples' reaction? Like, like how did James react? And, 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 and how did Bartholomew, I mean, did anybody faint? You know, like, was, what, what happened in those moments when Jesus was there? How long did it actually take them to clue in that it really was him? 
Well, John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote the account this way for a reason. And even though we wish the story was longer, we need to focus on what John does say, not on the details that we'd like to know. And, and what John says is significant. In fact, when it comes to Easter, I think what John says is actually kind of overlooked. And it's something that I want us to dive into this morning. And it's verse 20 where he says, and he's talking about Jesus. And as Jesus spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. He was saying, here, here's the proof that it's actually me. Here is the confirmation of my identity. And it says they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. I bet. The last number of weeks, we've been working through a series of talks that we've called Ask Me Anything. Uh, we've been talking about some of the big questions that people have when it comes to faith and spirituality, uh, specifically the Christian faith, um, because sometimes we're wanting to believe in God, we're, we're wanting to believe in Jesus, we're wanting to have faith, but there's these questions that are there, like, like how do I know God exists? So we talked about that. When we talked about, is Christianity really the, the only true religion? I mean, what about the exclusive claims of Christianity? Is Christianity's right and, and everybody else isn't right? You know, what do you do with that? What about hell? What about evil? What about science and, and evolution? Can I trust the Bible? Was Jesus a real person? And all of those are actually really important questions and they're huge questions that some of us really wrestle with. And, and if you missed one of those talks, you can catch it online, uh, either audio or you can actually watch the video online and, and it, it's there for you. But one of the things that we found out is that some of those questions are kind of philosophical in nature, but many of them are really questions about history. They're really questions about events. And in fact, we found out that the foundation of Christianity is rooted not in philosophy, not in theology or mysticism or in anything supernatural in that sense, but it's really rooted in the arena of history and actual events. And when you start digging into what the Christian faith is really all about, you will find that historical events are the rock on which Christianity is built. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, we, we looked at this quote from biblical scholar N.T. Wright that says that ultimately, Christianity is about something that happened. Something that happened to Jesus of Nazareth. Something that happened through Jesus of Nazareth. And so this morning, as we bring this series to a close, I want us to focus on one last question. Talk about something that I think is actually really important, and it's the nature of faith. The nature of specifically the Christian faith. What does it mean to have faith? What does it mean to actually believe or, or have faith in Jesus? Because when I talk to people about this kind of stuff, I find that sometimes people have a misunderstanding of what faith in Jesus is really all about. So in prepping for this message, I decided I'd do some deep research on faith, and I did what every re good researcher does. 
I Googled faith, and uh, here's what came up. What is faith? Well, it says, first of all, that, that faith is complete trust or confidence in someone or something. It's having confidence or trust. And, and I think we, we understand that aspect or that meaning of faith. Now, the sample sentence that they gave with that definition was, was actually kind of a laugh out loud, ironic moment when I read that because here's the sample sentence that they gave for that, that meaning of faith. This restores one's faith in politicians. <laughs> and I read that, I thought, oh my goodness. They, they really had to, to pick a sentence there. No wonder people don't have, is there faith on the earth? No, there's no faith on the earth because we haven't had our confidence restored in, in politicians. But, so this, that, that's one meaning of faith. But there's another aspect of faith, another understanding of faith. And, and this is the way actually that we typically use the word in a religious context. And, and that's this, that, that faith is a strong belief in God or in the doctrines of a religion based on spiritual apprehension rather than proof. Now, don't you love when they use a word in a definition that you have to look up and find the definition of? Like apprehension, like, like what does that mean? Well, apprehension is a word that, that has three different meanings and, and one is fear or anxiety or nervousness and, and that doesn't make sense in that context. It's not talking about spiritual nervousness rather than, than, than proof. Uh, another meaning for apprehension is, is like when a pre, uh, police officer uh, arrests someone, you know, you're apprehending a criminal. But the third meaning is the act of perceiving or comprehending someone understanding something. So we could actually fix that this morning and, and put it this way, strong belief in God or faith is a strong belief in God or in the doctrine of a religion based on supernatural, on spiritual understanding rather than proof. And so that's what most people would say faith is. There's this very real idea that when it comes to religion, when it comes to spirituality, when it comes to faith, what you believe in, what you put your faith in is not something that can be proven or verified or substantiated. It's just something you have to accept spiritually, you know, because it's, it's, it's mystical, it's it's philosophical, it's, it's an idea, it's, it's something that's metaphysical, something that's beyond physical, it's, it's something that's beyond verification. You just gotta believe it. And for most of the religions of the world, that's absolutely true. In fact, as historian Dr. John Dixon points out, most of the world's religions are based on truth claims which cannot be verified. They're based on truth claims that can't be verified. Now, let me be clear. Uh, when he says that truth claims can't be verified, he's not saying they're not true. He's saying that they just can't be tested empirically or historically. It's an idea or a thought that is beyond scientific or historical scrutiny because it's philosophical. It's mystical, or maybe it's ethical. Or it's an idea, it's, it's something metaphysical, it's something that's beyond 
the physical. It's not something concrete and solid that you could like take into a lab or, or uh, look at from a historical perspective. And that's exactly where most of the world's religions are at. In fact, let's talk about a, a couple of them. One that we could talk about is Buddhism. Buddhism is all about the ancient mystical insights gained by a 6th century BC Indian prince. And so he, he had these encounters, these, these revelations, and he came up with ideas like karma and the path to enlightenment. And, and we need to understand that these are all mystical beliefs that are, that are beyond verification. They, they can't be proven. Uh, things like incarnation. I can't be proven. Now, I know there's people that, that know, they feel that they have you know, been incarnated, that they had a previous life and then they were something else. And, but I mean, I don't care how strongly they believe it or, or what Shirley MacLaine says or somebody like that. You, you can't prove it though, can you? I mean, they're, they're just saying it. There, there's no way you can actually verify that. So Buddha lived almost 3,000 years ago, and that's verifiable, but his teachings aren't because they're just ideas that can't be put to a scientific or uh, historical inquiry. Another religion we could talk about is, is Islam. Islam is all about revelations received by an Arabian nobleman named Muhammad, in the 7th century AD, and it's actually the youngest of the major world religions. And Muhammad said that he had an angelic visitation, a vision telling him that he was the messenger of God, that he was God's prophet. And for the next 20 years, he claimed to have received frequent and detailed revelations about God and about life and about spirituality. And he came up with, through these revelations, the five pillars of Islam. And if you're going to please Allah, you have to live by the five pillars. You need to pray five times a day. You have to uh, um, be generous in your almsgiving. You need to fast at Ramadan. You, you need to take the pilgrimage to Mecca. And you need to uh, declare that there's no God but Allah. And if you will live your life based on these five pillars, you'll hopefully please Allah and be, be counted as worthy. But you can't, verify any of that. You just have to take Muhammad's word that that's what he heard. And millions do. The same can be said about the Sikh religion or the Hindu religion or any of the Eastern religions. The nature of their faith and the nature of their truth claims are mystical. Their beliefs are based on spiritual apprehension or spiritual understanding rather than something that can be verified and tested uh, either scientifically or historically. And virtually all of the world's religions are at their core unverifiable in that sense. Now that doesn't mean necessarily that they're false. It just means that if you're gonna put your faith in them, it's a faith that is based on spiritual apprehension. It's a faith that is based on, on spiritual understanding and perception without empirical or historical proof. In fact, as historian Dixon would claim, there's only three religions in the world that are premised on what he would call verifiable claims. 
claims that can be investigated and found to be either credible or incredible. Only, only three religions in the world. And they are Judaism, Christianity, and what's the third one? Mormonism. Now, I'm not an expert on, on, on Mormonism or the Church of Latter-day Saints, uh, but that's where I want to start, uh, because the Mormon faith is said to be verifiable because much of the Book of Mormon claims to be history. It's history of what happened in North America about the time of Christ, which means that it's open to historical and archaeological scrutiny. Well, does it stand up to that scrutiny? When you look at what it says from a historical perspective, when you look at it from an archaeological perspective, is it confirmed to be true? Now, I'm not a, an expert in the Book of Mormon. I've never actually read it, so I can't go there. But most historians and most scholars who have looked at it would say that it doesn't. In fact, all scholars who are not Mormon would say that it actually doesn't. Well, it claims to be historical. Things start to break down pretty quickly when you actually get in there and look at it. Now, that doesn't necessarily make it false, but it does seem to challenge its credibility. Well, what about the Jewish faith? Again, the Jewish faith is full of lots of, of religious things like laws and prophecies and ethics and, and theology, but there's also lots of history in the Jewish scriptures, the Torah. You find kings like David and Solomon and Nebuchadnezzar. You read about events like the Babylonian exile that, that actually can be dated to 598 BC. You read about the exodus of the slaves from Egypt that, that happened, uh, well, that one's a little harder to date, somewhere between 1200 and 1400 BC. So there's all these events and, 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 and history that's presented there in the Jewish scriptures. And, and what happens when the historians and the archaeologists look at the historical claims of the Jewish scriptures, which, by the way, is also the Old Testament of the Christian Bible, okay? What happens? Well, it actually stands up to historical verification. The events that are recorded actually have happened. The names and the places are actually, for the most part, there. And there's still some, some mystery and some aspects of it that, that can't necessarily be qualified, but so much of it has got a real solid historical and archaeological uh, foundation. So it leads to confidence that there's something significant about the Hebrew Scriptures. Well, Christianity is, is the, the third one that, that Dixon mentions is, is verifiable. And of course, I'm a Christian and we're in a Christian church and it's Easter Sunday morning, so we probably should talk about that one, right? Well, Christianity, we need to understand, first of all, affirms ancient Judaism. We need to understand that Jesus was a Jew, the first apostles and almost all the first believers were devout Jews. And Christianity can only be understood as the fulfillment of the ancient Jewish scriptures. But what makes Christianity unique among all the major religions of the world is that its teachings and its beliefs 
and its ideas come from someone who said that he himself was God. Of all the major religions in the world, Jesus alone claimed to be God. Jesus alone personally claimed to reveal God, not through a mystical dream or through a vision or some angelic visitation, but through who he was, through what he said, through what he did, and through the events that happened to him. Buddha never said that. Confucius never made that kind of a claim. Muhammad and Joseph Smith never said that. They said that they had dreams, they had visions, they had angelic visitations, they had these ecstatic experiences, they had mystical insight, but none of them ever claimed to actually be God. But Jesus did. In fact, one day he was walking along with his disciples and he got talking to them saying, you know, one, I'm going to go prepare a place for you so that where I go, you can come with me. In my father's house are, are many rooms. And of course, Thomas goes, Lord, we don't know where you're going or what you're talking about. And then Jesus said, well, listen, I am the way, the truth and life. No one can come to the father but by me. And Philip then says in, in John chapter 14, Lord, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. And you can almost hear the exasperation in Jesus' voice when he replies, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me and does his work through me. And in another passage, Jesus says, I and the, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, we read a passage like that, and to be honest, I think the significance of it goes over our head. It's like a jet plane flying at 30,000 feet. You know, we can hear a little bit of the sound, but, uh, you know, we're not feeling anything. Well, I think we need to bring it down so that this really messes with our hair and blows out our eardrums, okay? We, we need to get this. And, and there's a comment from New Testament scholar George Ladd that I hope will help us grab, grasp the, the implication of what Jesus is saying there. He says the uniqueness of, of the scandal, and I love the way he puts it, that the scandal of the Christian religion rests on the mediation of revelation through historical events. It's that God chose to reveal himself, to show himself through history. And Christianity is not just a code for living or a philosophy of religion. It's rooted in real events of history. He's saying Christianity is not just an idea. It's not just a thought in someone's mind or in someone's heart. It's the revelation of God in real historical events and real historical people. In fact, when the apostle Paul got to speak to the philosophers at at Athens, he talked about Jesus and he said this, God commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. 
For he set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. Now, who's Paul talking about here? Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus, isn't he? I mean, who is this person that's been appointed to judge the world? It's Jesus. That's why we refer to him as King and Lord. But how did God prove that Jesus is King and Lord and righteous judge? How did he prove it? By raising him from the dead. The news of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, friends, is not just an idea. It's not just a story revealed in the head of, of a prophet and then written down as, as some myth that is called the gospel. It has always been about a phenomena of time and space. It was a public, verifiable event in the very human life of Jesus. A man who claimed to personally in himself reveal God and then prove that he was by conquering death. As George Ladd goes on to say, to some people this is scandalous because it means that the truth of Christianity is inexplicably, I got that word out right, bound up with the truth of certain historical facts. And if those facts should ever be disproved, Christianity would be false. This, however, is what makes Christianity unique because unlike other world religions, modern man has a means of actually verifying Christianity's truth by historical evidence. Christianity is verifiable. And friends, it was always God's intention for Christianity to be verifiable. It was always Jesus' intention for it to be that way. And that's why on that first Easter Sunday evening, when Jesus appeared to his weary, grief-stricken band of followers, undoubtedly startling them out of their minds, what does he do and, and, and what does he say? Well, he showed them the wounds. He showed them the scars in his hands. He showed them the scars in his side. And he said, it's me. It's really me. You aren't having a hallucination. You're not having a vision. I'm not a ghost. I'm not a spirit. I'm not a fantasy. I'm really alive. I'm here in the flesh. This is a physical body. Come close to me. Touch me. Feel my scars. See the wounds. It proves my identity. It proves that I'm here. And the disciples were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Now, I don't know where you are in your faith journey this morning. Maybe you say, you know, if, if I was there in that room that day when Jesus showed up, you know, if I saw him alive, in person, with the scars, then I'd believe. But as it is, um, well, you know, one of the most fascinating twists of the Easter story, aside from the fact that it was 
women who saw Jesus first. I mean, that itself is, is a pretty crazy twist, especially if you understand first century uh, customs. But, but aside from that, one of the fascinating twists of the Easter story is that when Jesus first appeared to his disciples, one disciple wasn't there. There was one guy missing. In fact, one of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. And, and we don't know where Thomas went, why he was gone. Uh, we don't know whether maybe he'd gone out for a coffee at Starbucks or gone to make a phone call because they didn't have cell phones back then. But we know that he wasn't there when Jesus appeared. And when he got back to the room where they were gathered, he couldn't believe his eyes and he couldn't believe his ears because the atmosphere had changed. I mean, a party had broken out. The grief was gone. The, the, the depression that was there had lifted and, and the tears of sorrow had become tears of joy. And the disciples gathered around Thomas and said, we've seen the Lord. Jesus was here. He was here with us. He was here right with us in his flesh, his life. He's, his body was here. He showed us the wounds in his, in his hands. He showed us the wound in his side. Jesus was really here. And Thomas said, yeah, right. I don't believe it. I won't believe it. In fact, the very famous words, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands and put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wounds in his side. I mean, think about that. That's pretty graphic comment that Thomas is making there. I'm not gonna believe in Jesus until I um, go put my hands into that wound. I won't believe because I'm not just going to believe a good story. I'm not just going to believe something is true because I desperately want it to be true. I need verification. I need proof. And because of that reaction, what do we call this guy? We call him Doubting Thomas. He's the guy who wouldn't believe. The guy who had no faith. The doubter. But you know what? That's not the end of the story says in verse 26 that eight days later, the disciples were together again. And this time, Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. And the disciples says, Jesus, you gotta quit doing this. You're gonna give us cardiac arrest. But then he said to Thomas, Interestingly, before Thomas said anything, he knew what Thomas had said. He knew what was in Thomas's mind. He knew what was in Thomas's heart. Put your fingers here and look at my hands. Put your hands into the wounds in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. Thomas exclaimed, not a word of astonishment, not even a word of praise, but one of the strongest statements in the entire Bible on the deity of Christ, Thomas said, my Lord and my God. You really are who you say you are. You are God in the flesh. And then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me. And then Jesus says something to you this morning because he says, blessed are those who believe without seeing me. 
You see, lots of people saw Jesus after his resurrection. In fact, you read, Paul says he appeared to 500 people at once. He appeared to James, his brother. He appeared to all the disciples and, and people saw him. But 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven. And while some people at certain times have seen him, the apostle Paul being one of them, when Jesus came and appeared to him on the, on the road to Damascus, most of Jesus' followers have not seen him and will not see him until we pass away and go to be with him in glory or until he returns. And then we will see him face to face. We will behold him in all of his glory. In fact, I was thinking earlier this morning when I was looking at that lily that's got my mom and dad's name on it. I said, man, what's, what's that first Easter in heaven gonna be like? Man, I mean, it's, uh, heaven's gonna be one incredible party, but I tell you, that, that first Easter in heaven is gonna be something. When we're gathered there around the throne and we see Jesus, who by the way is still in a physical body, and we see the, the wounds in his hands, and we see that wound in his side, the one who died for us. Man, that, 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 that's, gonna be, that's gonna be some event. That's gonna be someday. But Jesus said, you know what, Thomas? You see me and you believe, but blessed are those who believe without seeing. And Jesus isn't saying, blessed are those who just have a spiritual apprehension of me. He's not saying that, hey, you know what? Nobody else is gonna be able to verify the truth of my claims because I'm not here. Because as we've looked at this series, all kinds of truth claims of Christianity are verifiable. We've talked about them. We've talked about that it's more than just an idea or a belief or a doctrine. The reality is that Jesus was a real person. He's not just a myth. He's not just a legend. And that's been confirmed by non-Christian sources. We've talked about how the ancient scriptures have been incredibly preserved in the Bible that we have today. And that we can read it with confidence knowing that what the apostles originally wrote 2,000 years ago is actually the words that we're reading now. It's verifiable through, through the scholars to do the work on the ancient manuscripts. And, and we can have incredible confidence in the trustworthiness and the cohesiveness of the scriptures. We don't even have time this morning to get in how, into uh, how the resurrection story in and of itself stands the scrutiny of history. I mean, the, the historians can, can look at it and they point out all kinds of things that point to the veracity and the truthfulness and the honesty of the resurrection story. In fact, how that there were so many people that were witnesses, including women. I mean, there were women. In fact, you, I found out this week that in the, in the centuries immediately following Christ, there was actually a movement to discredit the Christian faith because the, of the witness of the women. You know, it's like they used women. They said women witnessed these things. Obviously, that means Christianity is not true. I mean, frankly, if you're a woman here, if, if you're a woman, you should be a huge fan of Jesus and a huge fan of the Christian faith because it actually brings women to where God intended them to be. Uh, you know, there is not this, 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 this weaker sex, thing. and I used air quotes, those that are you, of you that are listening online, I was using air quotes when I said that. You know, there's a respect and a place of honor and dignity given to women. And the fact that the first people that saw Jesus alive were women. 
I mean, it points to the veracity of the story. The fact that the tomb was, was empty points, I mean, what do you do with that? Even back in the day, they didn't know what to do with that. How do you, what do you do with this empty tomb business? That's what the whole story Risen, that movie we looked at earlier was, was all about. Uh, the slight divergence in the four accounts of the gospels. You know, each of them are, are just slightly different. You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they all come at it from just slightly different. In the, in the, in the big details, it's the same, but there's these little minor things that, that one says that the other doesn't say. And, and then again, the historians look at that and they said that actually points to the veracity of the account because you go to any live event, people are going to have slightly different perspectives on what actually happened. It's when you read a story that everybody reads the same way that all the events are the same. So, so the, the, the diversity of the events, the divergence of events in the four accounts points to the veracity of the story. And then of course, there's the transformation of Jesus' followers. These guys that were sitting there in that upper room with the door locked and the curtains drawn for fear of the Jews became so bold in their witness of Jesus. I mean, something had to have happened. I mean, we talked a couple of weeks ago about how the church grew in the next couple of hundred years to actually take over the Roman Empire despite the persecution that was on them from the Jews and the Romans. I mean, how does that happen? The fact that you're sitting here this morning listening to me talk about Jesus 2,000 years later, I mean, how does that happen? It says something. It says something. Friends, I can't prove the Christian faith to you. And that's not my goal this Easter Sunday morning. Whether or not you become a Christian depends not so much on your acceptance of mere facts, facts that I believe are solid and significant, but it actually depends on your willingness to trust your life to Jesus to trust your life to the God who stepped into time and space and revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ? Will you trust your life to the God who revealed himself in Jesus? All I'm trying to do this morning is to help all of us see and, and all of us understand that you can explore the truthfulness of Christianity in a way that you can't with any other religion because Christianity is about something that happened. The truth and the power and the reality of Jesus is embedded not just in an idea or a dream or a doctrine, but in history. In fact, John writes, the conclusion of that chapter, he says, the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. These events, these historical things that actually happened were written so that you may continue to believe and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. Friends, we don't put our faith in the historicity of the events. We put our faith in Jesus. We put our faith in him. But we can look at the events and say, you know what? Jesus is somebody worth putting my faith in. Amen. Let's pray.
Jesus is such an amazing story. And Lord, I'm so grateful that we can look at it from so many different perspectives and so many different ways. And it just rings with clarity. Father, I want to pray for anybody that's here this morning or maybe listening to the podcast. And they're wrestling with what it means to put their faith in you. And Jesus, I pray that you'd give them the courage to do the hard work, the spade work, the detective work, to really look at the truth claims of Christianity. To look at the God claims that you made. And to wrestle with the implications of your death and your resurrection. And may the reality of your power crystallize in our hearts and minds that our faith will be placed in you. In Jesus' name, amen.